is episode 176 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Stem Cells and the Skin, with Dr. Valerie Borson. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Daylon James and Dr. Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. If you missed last week's episode, then you missed the news that Stem Cell Technologies is launching a new sister podcast to the Stem Cell Podcast. The Immunology Podcast will be a brand new podcast covering the latest advances in immunology, including topics such as adaptive and innate immunity, immune regulation, autoimmunity, immunotherapy, and infectious disease research. And it's looking for two great hosts. If you're an immunology researcher, with a demonstrated passion for communicating cutting-edge research, then we want to hear from you. If you're interested in applying or learning more about the opportunity, visit stemcellpodcast.com slash immunologypodcast. Today, we have Dr. Valerie Horsley from Yale University on the podcast to talk about her research into the role of stem cells in epithelial tissue homeostasis We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news coming right up. But first, we recently featured Dr. Sergio Pasco on the podcast to discuss his research on corticospinal muscle organoid models. If you haven't listened to that one, definitely check it out. Really, really cool stuff. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to learn more, check out Stem Cell Technology's upcoming webinar with Dr. Pasco for a deeper dive into the insights brain organoids and assembloids can provide for human development and disease. Registration for the September 24th event is available now at www.stemcell.com slash Pasca webinar. All right, Arun, you know, in a nod to our guest and her recent paper on lipolysis that was in Cell Stem Cell, we covered it on a recent episode. And also, you know, because it's the end of summer and sometimes you just have to appeal to the people's vanity. I'm going to tell you a story about adipocytes, all right? This is uh, the serious end of this is obesity and metabolic syndrome. It's a big deal. It's only getting worse worldwide, particularly in first world countries. Um, and you know, what is fat? Well, there's this typical fat that we know about, white adipose tissue, but there's also the brown adipose tissue. And while white adipose tissue is the main site for storing excess fuel, brown adipose tissue is more about energy dissipation. In fact, it uh, generates heat in response to cold exposure, and that's due to the unique expression of this protein, uncoupling protein 1, called UCP1. All right, And although UCP1 expression is restricted to the brown adipose tissue under basal conditions in response to prolonged cold or this beta-3 adrenergic stimulation, you can get activation and recruitment of brown-like beige, also called bright adipocytes in white adipose tissue. And these bright adipocytes, they express UCP1 and produce heat in a process called browning, okay? So um, in adults, humans, uh, white adipose tissue, it's distributed everywhere. That's kind of the problem. You know, you have all that sub-Q fat and elsewhere um, lo located superficially, right? Uh, conversely, brown adipose tissue, it's deep, right? It's in the deep fat pads and the cervical, supraclavicular, paravertebral regions, okay? So it's not everywhere and it's deep. It's not really accessible, okay? But the superficial white adipose tissue, on the other hand, it's a really 
great target, right? It's easily reachable and manipulatable, and we don't love it. We hate our white adipose tissue. If we could get rid of it or get it to work for us, it'd be a great target, right? So obviously, here's the idea. You see where I'm going with this. Can we get the white adipose tissue to behave more like the brown, specifically by expressing this UCP1 in mice that ectopically express UCP1 in skeletal muscle or adipose tissue? They're protected from diet-induced obesity. Um, also, pigs that lack functional UCP1, um, you can get, uh, well, pigs baseline, they lack functional UCP1, but if you get ectopic expression in the white fat, you get lipolysis and cold tolerance, right? So it seems like the principle's there, but it's unclear whether we can do this in humans by activating the endogenous UCP1 locus. That's where Yuhua Sang from uh, Harvard Stem Cell Institute came in the idea that the, the lab had was to create human brown-like cells. Okay, they call these humble human brown-like cells, and which is ironic considering this is a direct appeal to vanity, but they call them <laughs> humble cells. Um, and the, the way they get these humble cells is they engineer human white pre-adipocytes uh, by using CRISPR-Cas9 SAM, okay? And SAM is a synergistic activation mediator, these specialized CRISPRs that can supercharge transcription in endogenous locus. And they do this, they activate endogenous UCP1, um, and then they put the cells, these human white pre-adipocytes that have been engineered to express UCP1 or supercharge it, they put it into obese immunocompromised mice, nude mice, uh, and showed that there's a sustained improvement in glucose tolerance and insulin sensitivity, as well as increased energy expenditure. So, boom. Looks like it worked, and we should be lining up to have our white adipocytes um, engineered. But here's the catch. When they look in the mechanism here, what they found is that what these humble cells were actually doing, at least in part, was that they were promoting production of nitric oxide, nitric oxide which was then activating the endogenous brown adipose tissue. Um, and that's what was like the player. So it, it was kind of secondary um, to activation of, of the endogenous uh, brown cells there that seem to be mediating the effect. So it's a cell therapy, I guess, but it, it might not be directly, um, at least in a sustained, effective way, contributing to the to the phenotype that seems to be all the rage. So I would wait. I would wait before you get the whole lipo engineering and put it back in thing <laughs> until we've got a little bit more refined. Arun, what do you think? Well, it's an attractive concept to somebody, you know, like myself, who's been accumulating a lot of these white adipocytes during quarantine. You know, uh, it's it's definitely attractive, the ability to convert these white adipocytes into the brown fat. I actually liked one of the, the limitations in the study. And you mentioned, a, you know, a natural way to stimulate brown fat accumulation is through through cold stimulation. And there was a, a statement here towards the end of the paper, which I really liked. Although several clinical studies have demonstrated that cold exposure is an effective way of activating BAT, brown adipose tissue, therapeutic cold exposure is uncomfortable for humans. <laughs> yes, yes it is. As somebody who lived in Boston for three years, I can attest to that. But I digress. So this is a, it's a cool idea. Like you said, everybody wants to accumulate brown adipose tissue. There are a couple of limitations that you, you actually touched on here. One is the fact that they actually used immunocompromised nude mice. I mean, it's a pretty standard model. A lot of folks are using it around the world, but it is definitely a limitation. These aren't perfect replicates for the 
for the true human immune system. And another thing to actually mention here, all the animals were from a single facility. And so these reasons are actually why I really like that HELO paper. You remember that? The human islet-like organoid paper that we covered a few weeks ago? That's part of the reason why the story was so good, because you're talking about active transplantation into a fully immunocompetent mouse, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's really a gold standard. If you can get whatever cell therapy you're interested in working in an immunocompetent model, then I think that is really facilitating that clinical translation. But hey, you know, it's it's a neat proof of concept, and I'm sure they've got a lot of work that they're going to work on in the future. Yeah, I, I think you, you nailed it there at the end. It's proof of concept. And I mean, in fairness to the group, there was a lot of moving parts there. You know, there was getting the cells out, human primary, and then engineering them, putting them back in. So it was a hodgepodge of all these things, including a cell therapy. Uh, and, you know, I'll be honest, I think that it was a bit of a letdown for me in terms of the mechanism, because as a as someone who works and studies and is interested in kind of regenerative processes of stem cells, um, you always, you know, a flag always goes up uh, for me when you have, it's not a real direct contribution. I remember the big, the big challenge back in the days of mesenchymal stem cells being shot into the heart as everyone was saying, well, how are they doing anything when they're not really contributing? And this isn't right. by any means a correlate to that. I mean, they're, they're right out front with it. It doesn't even hinder the 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 viability of this as being an applied therapy it's just not exactly what i signed up for i want to see those cells <laughs> doing the work you know what i mean but uh like you said proof of concept and and we'll have to wait to see how they refine it to get me slim and you know i'll be like a little ember if if uh, you get my brown adipose tissue cooking <laughs> well we'll have to stay tuned and see what these folks from uh the Harvard Medical School are going to work on next, you know. So next we're shifting away from Boston, cold Boston, all the way to Cincinnati. And this is a collaborative effort between Cincinnati Children's and the Riken. I'm actually going to talk about a couple of back-to-back papers that are coming out in Nature Communications. So Cincinnati Children's has really established themselves as an organoid expertise, an organoid expert hub. You hear a lot about Jim Wells and Takenori Takebe and a lot of their uh, different endoderm differentiation protocols that they've been pioneering over the last few years. And so this is a uh, collaborative effort between their expertise and the expertise of the Riken. So these folks and the folks from Japan reported a couple things that are going to initiate a new wave of potentially more complex organoid development. And knowing that the expertise of the Cincinnati Children's is focused on the endoderm, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's kind of the direction that this goes to in the future. So their findings were actually advancing efforts to use pluripotent stem cells to generate organs from the fetal foregut, including trachea, esophagus, stomach, liver, and pancreas. A lot of different possibilities here. So in the first paper, which is titled Single Cell Transcriptomics Identifies a Signaling Network Coordinating Endoderm and Mesoderm Diversification During Foregut Organogenesis. First author is Lou Han. Last author is Aaron Zorn over at uh, Cincinnati Children's. So in the first paper, they were defining the complex signaling that's actually happening during the development of the mesenchyme. 
which is forming the smooth muscle and fibroblast tissues that are needed for organ function. And they use a bunch of single cell analysis to do this. And importantly, they're actually looking at the cross communication between the, end, the early developing endoderm and the, the mesoderm. So like I said, this is led by Aaron Zorn, and they use this information to actually differentiate equivalent human tissue in the lab. And that was the, the second paper that they worked on. They're actually using this single cell analysis to improve trachea differentiation. So what are the exact signals that they're looking at here? Well, they reported that in the very early stage human embryos, or not, not human, not human, very <laughs> early stage mouse embryos, we are not there yet, uh, they are looking at Wnt and sonic hedgehog, which is really cross-communicating between the endoderm and the mesoderm to facilitate the formation of the foregut. So they collaborated with Jim Wells, who is really well known for his intestinal differentiation, and Takenori Takebe, who we talk about, about a lot here on the podcast. And they developed a, a differentiation map, an atlas of foregut development in the mice. And they're showing that there are a variety of cells that are sending a ton of different signals that are triggering the formation of different organs that are branching out from the foregut. So this is something that's happening pretty early. They looked at mostly embryonic day 8.5 to 9.5 in mice, which is roughly corresponding to days 17 to 23 in human gestation. So there are groups of cells at different spots along the simple foregut tube that are transforming into different uh, rudimentary organs like the trachea, esophagus, liver, and pancreas. And so, uh, again, like the the real beauty of this is because they were they were using this single cell atlas to actually um, to identify some of these pathways. And then in the second paper, which is titled, um, let's see if I can pull it up here, bidirectional wind signaling between endoderm and mesoderm confers tracheal identity in mouse and human cells. So they were using that information from the first single cell atlas paper to actually create a uh, a better differentiation protocol for the trachea. And the trachea differentiation is, again, not only incorporating the endoderm, but also the mesoderm. So they're, again, using wind signaling uh, and harnessing wind signaling to improve their, their differentiation. And this is a study that's led by lung development expert Mitsunuro Morimoto over at the Riken in Japan. They were using different mice to figure out which signals are actually important to trachea formation. And again, they're able to identify that it's really Wnt that's that's doing the deed here. Um, so I, I think this is fantastic. It's a collaborative effort between labs across the world, and it shows how easy it is to do that sort of collaboration these days, right? They said, you know, four years ago, they're going to set up this effort uh, from experts in organoid differentiation at Cincinnati Children's and other experts over at the Riken, and this is the the fruit of their their labor. Um, and it's, it's important because it has a lot of implications for complex organoid differentiation. We talked to Sergio Pasca a few episodes ago, and he's got these you know, corticomuscular spinal organoids, these assembloids that are uh, combined together, right? And these folks at Cincinnati Children's are actually hoping to do something similar, not using brain organoids, but potentially with gut organoids. Of course, the endoderm differentiates into a bunch of different organs in the gut. And uh, Takenori Takebe has actually been working on this, right? So he's 
generated this three organoid system that includes the liver, the pancreas, and the biliary ducts. And a discovery like this, like a roadmap like this, is going to help uh, take some of those systems to the next level. And the last thing that actually I want to mention here is they um, they did something that a lot of these Atlas papers are doing. They have published all their data and have created a website that you can actually use to interactively explore how these cells are interact, you know, um, uh, interacting during the development of the early four guts. So you can check it out at zornlab-singlecells. So uh, research.cchmc.org slash zornlab-singlecell. Uh, so a useful roadmap for endoderm differentiation. Yeah. Uh it's, I think about, just because it's the trachea, I think about, you know, there was those early studies about like making a bladder because it was monotypic from autologous mesenchymal stem cells. And then they were talking about the trachea. It was like a trachea, it's a relatively simple thing. And then the roadblock there was like, oh, wait, trachea is not so simple. And this is the really the, the, the proof. Well, it's not the proof of that, but that kind of underscores the the complexity of even tissues that you you appreciate as just like a conduit right you don't think about the trachea and its inductive ability but even the conduits out there can have some complexity um to them but you know on, on the other side of this is i i agree with you that this is such a great collaboration and and the the structure of these papers clearly from the outset you know these this was a, a back-to-back type story and mm -hmm. when you see a back-to-back story uh like this with high level a human and, and all the single cell everything you wonder why it's in nature come which is a you know great open access but you know that this was in review somewhere else so i would love to uh hear the story behind the review process here even though it's such a big high caliber story i bet the authorship is a little disappointed with the outcome here which you hate to see with something of such high caliber right Right. And I don't know if this is the the reality, but maybe it's something to do with single cell fatigue. Maybe we're finally getting to that point where people are just kind of sick at look, of looking at single cell papers again and again and generating different atlases. I mean, don't get me wrong. This is incredibly useful if you're working on trachea differentiation or endoderm differentiation. But maybe we're finally reaching that inflection point that we've been talking about a lot. You know, maybe single cell is, you know, past its peak. And now it's just a technology that everybody's using, right? Yeah, the fatigue is there. Believe me, I just pumped out a story in a cell reports, which while I'm proud of it, I have to say it's enough already with the single cell. It was all single cell and, and you know, it's useful. Um, but there's so many other competing stories that say the first to have a single cell of this, it's not the first anymore, guys. All right, moving on. There's an interesting element here about the skin again. I'm coming back to the skin because of our guest, um, Dr. Horsley. And here, I like this story because it's about regeneration. You know, we're talking always about cells and single cell and all the technologies that we're applying CRISPR. But at the end of the game, the real impetus behind all of this science is the regeneration or repair of disease and injury, right? Um, so, you know, when you think about baseline injury, uh, there's two major ways that that organisms repair. Okay, and there's the scar formation uh, or tissue regeneration. All right, and we don't like the one, and we do like the other. The scar it undermines the function, whereas regeneration results in full reconstitution of all the tissue-specific cell subtypes. Right. Um, so, the 
idea is how can we leverage that? How can we get ordered regeneration instead of the kind of patch uh, that is the scar? Um, so there's two uh, major models of mouse tissue regeneration that I'm going to talk about in this story. This is a story out of Science Immunology from Thomas Lung's lab at uh, UPenn. Um, and these two models are the ear hole closure and wound-induced hair neogenesis. Again, a nod to Dr. Horsley there with the hair follicle. Um, and that wound-induced hair neogenesis is actually interesting because it recapitulates all the elements of the follicle, all those different cell types, the sebaceous glands, the hair follicle, the fat. Um, so it can make these complex tissues and, and re restore that stem cell compartment. All right, so these were the models that the lung lab was looking at to try and understand this regenerative process and what was underlying it. And going in, this was based on the observation that there's this substance, amiquimode cream, okay? It's a inflammatory uh, chemical um, that acts through stimulation of toll-like receptor, and it's commonly used clinically to treat uh, skin cancer or warts, like genital warts. Um, it's a topical thing that you could administer. Uh, and so using this as a kind of surrogate to understand the regenerative process, the lung lab used in wild-type mice, they found that if they apply this topical amiquimod um, to the ear closure model, they got full closure, okay? Typically, you only get full closure in this special strain of mice that people observed when they did the ear punches, and they were like, huh, we can't mark these mice, and it was a big deal, and everyone studied those mice. Typically, you don't get that, but in these wild-type mice, they add the amiquimod, good. It works. But here's the thing, and this is where the story gets interesting. Because when you add the amicomode, you presume that it's acting through this toll-like receptor 7 that's been documented. But when you knock out toll-like receptor, the thing still works, right? So it's not the toll-like receptor. It doesn't seem to be necessary for the, for the function of this amicomode. And in fact, when you look at other receptors that have been known to be targets of this amicomode, if you knock out a hole, and this is a lot of work, they knocked out uh, uh, five, a total of five receptors, TLR7, also MyD88, NLRP3, TRPV1, and TRPA1, okay? And TRPA1 is, is the one we're going to be talking about in this story because all those other ones that were knocked out, you still got the repair of the injury. But when you knock out TRPA1, you get loss of that, okay? And TRPA1 is a nociceptor, right? It's uh, implicated in, in neurons. It's uh, on afferent neurons, and it's not really well described. There's still some controversy, but it has been described in other cells, including keratinocytes. But it's, it's really only been defined on neurons. Um, so it's inter in introducing this neural element to this immune axis here in a regenerative process, which is really exciting. And when they looked to see mechanistically what goes on there with TRPA1, they found that it stimulates dermal dendritic cells to make IL-23. Okay, so it's operating in this innate immune axis. And then, of course, they inject recombinant IL-23 sub-Q in the TRPA1 knockout mice and they find that they can rescue that repair. And then when they look at the wound site, they find that it's mostly driven by these dermal gamma delta um, T cells that in turn express the IL-23 receptor. So it's a lot, of, uh, a lot of work, a lot of mice, and a lot of experiments to mechanistically define this daisy chain of events that starts with the neural nociceptor and ends uh, with skin regeneration via 
this you know immunomodulatory process. And what's interesting, I mean, there's a lot of targets, I think, along the way there that you may want to leverage to try and get more ordered uh, wound healing, namely IL-23. So I think it's a nice story that introduced uh, an unexpected element um, of this you know, neural uh, contribution and actually has a, a real endpoint here in human trials and may justify the use of even amiquimode um, just more conventionally, not in the context of skin cancer or warts, but just in general wound healing, you know, plastics maybe. We should be giving a uh, micromode um, in order to reduce scar for these cosmetic or, um, you know, other maybe non-diabetic uh, patients to look at wound healing there. So I think it's a good story, science, immunology, and a nice segue uh, to our guest coming up. Yeah, that's a neat story. And like you mentioned um, at, at the end of your point there, Omiquimode might be repurposed for, for this particular use. That's actually a really hot topic these days is drug repurposing because if one drug has already received FDA approval, then using it for a different indication becomes a lot easier. The other thing I really liked about this paper was the multiple mouse models. Anytime you can kind of demonstrate that something is conserved across different mouse models, it's, it's a big plus to me. So we're talking about pain receptors, act, you know, activating a pain receptor here to limit scar formation. So um, not really focused on the pain side of it, but no pain, no gain, right? <laughs> well, it's interesting. We've got now pain and cold. That's the, uh, the route to good health. I don't know if our, our first world um, are, you know, a little bit delicate flowers here, but if, if, if uh, this story has uh, the kind of impact that I'm thinking it will, it's I would buy stock in whoever makes a micromode. You know, there's a lot of a lot of people in plastics that I think are looking to uh, re-up that facelift here and and, and you know ha not have to worry about the scar. But maybe I'm getting away from it a little bit. We can talk to our guest about that in just a few minutes. First. Uh, let me give you a message from Stem Cell Technologies who'd like to remind our listeners about Dermal Cell News, covering everything from dermal stem cells and tissue regeneration to skin cancers and disorders. Dermal Cell News keeps readers current with the latest news, research, policy, events, and jobs relevant to the dermal cell community. Check out Dermal Cell News and the rest of Stem Cell Scientific Newsletters at www.dermalcellnews.com. Dermal Cell News, it's got you covered, just like the skin. I added that last part. Now let's get to the guest. All right, today we have on the show Valerie Horsley, who's Associate Professor at Yale University in the Department of Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology, also Associate Professor of Dermatology. She's here to talk with us about her work. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for hopping on the podcast, Dr. Horsley. So we'll start things off by talking a little bit about your cell stem cell paper that actually we briefly covered here on the podcast, and it focuses on the role of adipocytes in skin repair. Now, adipocytes are traditionally known as those lipid-containing fat cells, right? But you found that they actually have multiple roles in facilitating skin repair after injury. So in particular, your lab showed that the adipocytes can actually de-differentiate and then transform into myofibroblasts in the wound bed. So tell us more about this adipocyte transdifferentiation, and do you think this idea of cell-fate plasticity is something that we should be paying a closer attention to in the skin and beyond? Yeah, so um, 
Yeah. So we initially were interested in sort of what or why is skin associated with these fat cells? Um, and this happens in both humans and most mammals um, and vertebrates. And so um, a postdoc in the lab, Brett Shook, who's now started his lab at George Washington University, kind of initiated these studies. And he was doing some lineage tracing early on in, the, in his postdoc. And he came to me with these images where he had labeled adipocytes with a genetic method in mice to mark the membranes with GFP. And he wounded the, the animals and found these green cells throughout the, the tissue. And he only saw the contribution of adipocytes to the wound bed is what we call the newly regenerated tissue. Um, after, if he, if he labeled the adipocytes prior to injury, um, but if he labeled them after injury, he didn't really see the contribution. So that kind of got us thinking that maybe this was the mature adipocytes that were contributing but we didn't really know what was going on. So he then um, started carefully looking at the cells and saw that they sort of shrunk in size after injury. And most of adipocytes is filled with this lipid droplet that stores triglycerides, we think, as energy. Um, but So the shrinking suggested that perhaps they were losing lipid. Um, and so we then knocked out the enzyme that would um, allow them to so that they couldn't break down the lipid any further. So we knocked out ATGL, which is a lipase, it basically cuts up the triglyceride. And when he deleted ATGL in adipocytes specifically, we no longer saw this contribution. Um, and so that really suggested that it was this lipolysis or breaking down of the fat that was then contributing to the cells being able to then contribute to cells within the wound bed. Um, and we went on to show that um, these cells became fibroblast-like cells. Um, that took a long time for us to figure that out because this was several years ago and we were still sorting out cells. We didn't have single cell RNA sequencing like we do now to figure it out. Um, but in the last few months of before, as the paper was getting revised, we did do a, an experiment to look at single cells and kind of see that these cells were becoming more fibroblast-like. Um, you know, I think that what's interesting to me is that our understanding of differentiation is really driven by terminal differentiation that occurs in cells like muscle or even in keratinocytes as they move up and become these stratified squamous cells that are sloughed off the skin. Um, and I think there, there's a lot more plasticity that we've likely haven't really thought about in stem cell biology. I think immunologists are really in, like used to thinking about cells being pretty plastic. Um, and, you know, there was a, a time early when I was in my PhD where there was a big fad of transdifferentiation happening, and that became a dirty word once people really saw that it was mostly cell fusion. Mm. So I think people have kind of shied away from that idea for a while. Um, but I think it's it's pretty clear that cells can, um, you know, especially in an injury situation where they have to heal the tissue or it's death for the animal, um, they have to, you know, fill the space that's going to be the dermis or the covering and the epidermis and the skin. And so 
we sort of feel like this is just an all cells on deck kind of mechanism to heal the tissue. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, trans differentiation is back. It's hot again. (laughs) Plasticity. Everybody's all about it. Um, but you know, thinking about stem cells, I think you're, it's just the idea, you know, is rooted in this hierarchical idea, right? That there's this master Mm -hmm. cell and then you go down the line. Um, and it's easy to reconcile that with like aging, right? Because you're like, oh, the stem cells get depleted as we age and everything makes sense. We think of that in uh, that kind of paradigm. And one interesting question raised by this study was whether the distribution of these cells and their derivatives changes as we age, perhaps contributing to reduced response to infection or wound healing, as I gathered. Um, Also, what about like liposuction? Does that slender <laughs> figure come at the expense of our immunocompetence? So that's a bit of an aside. But um, on, on the flip side also, is there this idea that you can soup up the dermal inflammatory response? Like to go back to the kind of regenerative stem cell idea, can you augment in a healthy individual or, or some, an aged individual to like recover that, that element of, of these cells? Yeah, so these are all really good questions. So with aging, we haven't we've done a little bit of work prior to the study looking at fat cells in aged mice. I think that it's it's pretty well established that in humans we lose fat in our skin over time, especially in our hands. People can see if you just compare a decade of people a decade apart from each other, you can really see the hands losing the fat in the skin. Um, and we found in mice that that's true. Other people, interestingly, have shown that fat in the skin expands with age, and we don't really understand why they have different results, except that perhaps in Europe, mice are fed a different type of diet than Hmm. in the U.S. Um, That's our hypothesis at the moment, but um, we definitely see that there is some loss of fat that's associated with the skin, um, with age. Um, and we had seen earlier in a, in a previous study that the stem cells for the adipocytes in the skin do seem to go away with age. So there's sort of a different population of fibroblast progenitor cells that exist in the skin with age. Um, you know, we also did some, some work in this paper where we looked at how do the cells contribute? So if cells are really filled with lipid and unable to release all their lipid, they can't really do this transdifferentiation and migrate into the wound bed. And so there are times like with hair growth in mice where the adipocytes are really large that they then can't, don't contribute as much to this uh, uh, stromal repair. Mm. Um, so we do think that there's probably changes with age that would impact the ability of these cells to contribute. And we, we still don't really know, like, what is the contribution? Is it substantial? So whether this contributes to wound healing defects with age, we don't know yet. Mm. Um, but that's something that we can definitely sort of look into. In terms of whether this could, adipocytes could then be used to promote healing, I think it could. Um, so uh, w- one of the things that we found was that the adipocytes release this, these lipids. And interestingly, the lipids that are harbored in a skin associated adipocytes are different than what's in like the subcutaneous depot, which is just a little farther down. 
And so this suggests that, you know, these lipids are there for a reason or perhaps can spark the immune response. So we found that inflammation was not as prevalent in mice that couldn't release the lipid from the adipocytes in the skin. And so, you know, it's possible that through dietary changes that we could, you know, sort of give more of these inflammatory lipids to um, adipocytes in the skin, and that would then foster more healing. We don't really understand how lipids are differently stored within adipocyte cells in different depots. Um, maybe they're produced in the skin and then stored directly with the fat cells in the skin. Um, but that's something that we're interested in kind of exploring in the future. Yeah, something that you mentioned in your answer there scared me a little bit. The fact that you said uh, the mouse diet between the between yes. Europe and the U.S. is totally different. That's that's a variable that people don't really think about that much, right? Um, yes. So that's that's a little scary. But to help answer, you know, a lot of these questions, like you mentioned, single cells a technology that's really emerged to dissect stem cell fate and cell plasticity, right? So all these technologies are emerging. It's kind of a golden age in new technologies for studying stem cell biology, right? And in addition to uh, single cell, like what you talked about, your lab has also used traction force microscopy to understand the physical properties of different epithelial cell clusters. So the skin is under constant mechanical forces that control its development, homeostasis, and regeneration. So traction force is really critical and it's a really important technology. So how has it helped illuminate how the skin works and uh, what do you hope to do with this technology in the future in your lab? Um, yeah, so you know, traction force microscopy was a, a fun collaboration that we set up with a physicist at Yale who then, now is in Zurich, um, Eric Dufresne. And um, in, in our work with both keratinocytes, as, and we did a study with human embryonic stem cells, we were kind of just looking at what is the tension that keratinocyte and ESL colonies exert on a surface. Um, so if you cut your skin, it creates a gaping hole, which is why we need stitches to kind of suture up the skin and hold it together. Um, and so that really does suggest, as you mentioned, Arun, that it's under tension. Um, but really what that tension is doing and how it fosters skin repair is not clear. Um, and so, yeah, we're interested in kind of exploring how cell forces on substrates as well as on and each other can contribute to tissue homeostasis and repair. Um, in the future, you know, we're thinking about that in terms of how, how these different fiber, fibroblast populations function. Um, so we found in a prior study that there are different populations of fibroblasts that secrete different extracellular matrix molecules. And so how does that contribute to how much tension the tissue has or how much the, the cells, either the fibroblasts or the keratinocytes, exert on the ECM matrix, you know, something that we could explore with that technology. So, yeah, all future questions. We talk about uh, stretch in the skin. You were just mentioning your fellow uh, Fuchs alum, Cedric Blancpain, just we just talked about his story on uh, the last episode, I think, Arun, right, about stretch. I think it was in Nature yeah. Cell Bio, and he just popped off another one in Nature. 
I a know. couple of days he ago. He's on stop. fire. <laughs> <laughs> he needs to settle down. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, the two of you and all you skin people, you've known all along uh, that it's really all about the niche, right? People are sudden, suddenly coming around to that. Um, and that's this idea that you can't really separate the biology from the architecture. Uh, and now groups like Carl Kohler's are providing really vivid examples of how we can recapitulate some of that complexity from pluripotent stem cells. Um, so as someone who's rooted in the study of endogenous stem cells within the skin, I get that, but you dabble in pluripotent, I know that. Um, <laughs> what do you think uh, are the great benefits and limitations of the pluripotent stem cell system? Do you see them being used for applications like that of uh, famously Michele, Michele De Luca, sorry about that, um, who famously grew the genetically repaired skin in vitro to treat epidermolysis bullosa? Mm -hmm. um, I do think so, although I think that it's probably more likely that we could just use keratinocytes to do the same thing. Yeah. Um, the problem with, you know, I did have some studies in the lab with uh, embryonic, human embryonic stem cells. And, you know, I, I use a, mice a lot in my studies, which are really slow, but I found they were just so slow <laughs> and so variable and frustrating um, to study. And so that really kind of drew me away from it. And also the fact that you can't differentiate them fully all the way, really. Mm. I mean, people are starting to come up with ways, but I think the field has a little bit farther to go to where we know how to culture them in a way that fosters them to form tissues in the way that we see in an in vivo animal, uh, which is sort of where my passion lies. And so I wanted to, you know, step away a little bit from using those cells uh, in our work just until the field kind of catches up. It's a fair answer, but you got to be careful about who you're saying that to because <laughs> we're big fans of pluripotent stem cells yes, I, here on the no, show. I, I want you guys to keep working. Um, I, I appreciate, you know, it's just like I'm not a technology developer, right? Fair. Like I, I, I'm not, that's not my skill set, not what I'm interested in. So I appreciate the work that is being done and has been done to get the cells to differentiate and form the different cell types that we can. But for me to like want to use them in my own work is, I think it's going to take some time yet. Fair enough. Well, you can't be good at everything, Valerie. No problem. <laughs> exactly. No problem. So you, so Dalen mentioned that you trained in the lab of Dr. Elaine Fuchs, right? Who's yes, an icon. She's an absolute icon in the field yes. of skin biology and stem cell biology in general too. So she's one of those people that seems to be connected to everybody in the field. And if you've ever been a stem cell biologist in New York City, you've probably <laughs> crossed paths with Dr. Fuchs, right? So just ask Dalon. I mean, in addition to the amazing science <laughs> that the Fuchs lab does, what are some of the life lessons that you took away from working with Dr. Fuchs and training in her lab? Um, uh, so I think a couple of things. Uh, one, Elaine works harder than anyone I've ever met. And I, we know a lot of people that work hard, but she continually just works amazing hours. Um, and so I think just her uh, work ethic and, you know, a focus on her career and her science is really like inspiring. And so that's something I think about a lot when I 
don't want to work as hard as she does. Um, you know, it's, it's, it really is about not how much time necessarily, but you really do need to put a lot of effort to be at the level that she's working. Um, I think I also learned a lot about community. Um, so the lab was like 25 postdocs, uh, and we were all stressed and trying to publish on high, you know, profile journals in a short period of time. Um, so there was a lot of sort of personal interactions that, you know, we were in a heightened stress environment, but it also made us really good friends. Um, and so I have a lot of like some of my best friends are from that time where we're still colleagues. I still send them my papers and grants and I call them when my grants aren't scored and I cry to them on the phone a lot. So um, so that's something I learned about, like build your your, you know, fan club uh, of people that you can call for support in this career. Um, and I think another thing I learned about from Elaine is how to publish. So I think that's, she's a master at how to design a paper and sell it in a way that it's like understandably to broadly the field. Um, what's interesting is when I was in her lab was when she sort of started being in stem cell biology before that she was much more of a cell biologist. And, you know, I was in her lab when she gave her first talk at ISSCR and, um, so, you know, she's just a force and she's an amazing scientist and, and role model. Um, but I think those are the main things I learned from my time in her lab. So much to learn. That's probably just the, the top three. Um, yeah. you know, I did my training there, my doctoral training at Rockefeller and, you know, you, you kind of touched on it there, you, you, your community, build your community, but that was a big group of postdocs. It was a huge lab. Um, and 25, I don't know if it was that many, that's sick, but, uh, 25 postdocs and you see all the, the, the people that come out of Fuchs lab at the highest level, like yourself, Valentina, like Cedric, all these people, amazing. And that's just to name a few, but out of, you know, 25, there's always that many postdocs. There's gotta be some that don't or move in different directions. Right. Um, and that's what continues to surprise me. Oh about just Rockefeller in general, when I look at my class and my classes that come before and after me and the postdocs also, is how mixed the results are in the outcomes amongst the trainees there relative to like, for example, Harvard Law. My brother went to Harvard Law, where it seems like you get the keys to the kingdom on your way out. <laughs> you know, you do whatever you want. Outcomes in science seem much less predictable. Okay. And of course, I, that's a, a, there's an upside there. I think it's kind of baked in to, to the science, like a lot of creative, creative fields, it's kind of seems arbitrary, but you have a real commitment to men mentorship. Um, yeah. and how do you max out each individual talent in your lab? Mm. Mm. Yeah. You know, I think I've learned a lot in the last 12 years. Um, when I first stepped into my office at Yale, I was like, yes, this is awesome. You know, I've made it. And then two weeks later, I was like, Oh my God, <laughs> there is no way this is going to work out. They're going to come tell me that they made a big mistake. Um, 
And so in sitting there, like, how do I run a lab? You know, I thought about Elaine and, you know, there are things I do that are similar to her, but there are some things that like, it's just not Valerie. So I can't do that, you know? And we really don't have that many examples of mentors that we saw the day to day. Um, and so I really got inspired by Yuri Alon, who had this, you know, these talks on YouTube at the time um, about how to run a lab. And I really also got really inspired by Brené Brown and mm. how to be vulnerable and show up as yourself with courageously, daring greatly. Um, and I kind of just used those lessons that I learned from them with my mentees. And, you know, it's really, it's interesting because as much as I might want someone to go into academia and be an assistant professor at the next stage, it's really up to them to get there. Mm. And so balancing the desires and passions and ambitions of your trainees with your own is something that you, I really still struggle with at times. Um, but I think what I try to do is really make sure that I show up for the individual and I create trust in a way that my trainees can talk to me about what they want without feeling ashamed that it might not be what I want for them. Mm. Um, and for me, that's really through conversations, through how I show up in lab meeting, how I talk to them from the very beginning. It's like, this is yours to make what it, you will. I am just a facilitator. Um, and, you know, some people don't do, you know, I think they have more potential than they bring. And I tell them that in a way that's like, I, I care about you and I want you to sh be your best. And if this isn't the environment that allows you to show up and be your best, then let's figure out what that looks like for you. Um, so those are the kind of ways I think about that. Yeah, it's not something you ever really learn formally as a scientist, right? This idea of mentorship, it's something that you kind of learn on the fly. And so, I mean, I'm someone who's hoping to become a PI one day as well. And it's something that freaks me out too, right? It's, you have a lot of power and you have a lot of responsibility to make sure your trainees are, you know, succeeding. And like you said, the academic road isn't really the default career path anymore, right? So you have to kind of incorporate that too in your in your mentorship and be like, hey, the lessons I teach my my trainees are gonna stick with them no matter what they go into academia or or not. So I agree with you. It's it's tricky. It's tough, but I think you've done a pretty good job with it. You're a pretty good scientist. You're a pretty Thank good you. mentor, <laughs> and actually, you've got another big skill set that's actually pretty <laughs> rare these days when it comes to the science, the scientific side of things. You're actually a, uh, an accomplished politician, I suppose. So you're, <laughs> you're involved in the political process and it's okay. no secret that we're living during a pivotal moment in American history, right? It's a, there's an unbelievably important election coming up in a couple months. And although everything political these days seems so supercharged, negative and divisive, I think one recent, like pretty recent positive has been the increased engagement of scientists, right? Like yourself in government and public service. So yes. you've been kind of leading this vanguard of politically active scientists, right? And you formed 
Action Together Connecticut to engage Connecticut residents in politics. And you even ran for state Senate back in 2018, right? So I don't know how you find time for everything. <laughs> so what's your message to stem cell biologists and scientists in general who have traditionally kind of shied away from politics, but who actually want to become more involved now in the government and in political process? Yeah, I think um, there's a, several easy ways that you can um, influence what happens um, in your state um, government. And I think that what we've sort of seen is that many of the movements that have pushed things forward in the last few decades have really been a state-by-state -state effort. So, for instance, um, gay marriage passed by a few states before it became a federal um, law. So I think by focusing on your state, you can really make a big difference. So how do you do that? Um, state candidates are often not as popular as federal candidates, and they don't have as many volunteers. So if you give them two hours of your time, they will know you. Hmm. Two hours. In an election season, you can give them more. I usually do, but you know, two hours, everyone can do that. And what do you have to do? You have to talk to strangers. It is hard at the beginning, <laughs> um, but you know, it's kind of fun. Also, I enjoy meeting my neighbors and talking about you know what issues matter to you. And I think it's really opened my eyes to a world outside of my um, um, my my lab and Yale and, and the community at large. So that's been really great. Um, I think the, um, the other way you can get involved is speak at your town meeting. So town meetings are a little like faculty meeting for those of us in the faculty and a little like, I don't know if I understood exactly what I meant when I was a postdoc or a graduate student, but they can kind of go on and on, people sharing their opinions and some legislators or elected officials talking a lot. Um, but really, that's a place where you can have your voice met, like sounded. Um, and so not a lot of people do. So at the Board of Education meeting or just your town hall meeting, you can say, I really don't want the you know, Board of Education funding police and schools, for example. Um, and really like four people can make a difference. And so, you know, it's really not uh, hard to influence things if you just have your voice and organize people to do that. Um, yeah, so I think just you have to get involved somewhere and finding a candidate to volunteer for or just providing an email for these meetings in your local community can really make a big difference. Listen, people, this isn't just smoke, you know. Uh, Valerie, is, she may have fallen just short of state senate, but she was elected to legislative council in Hamden. I was. She was. Uh, indeed, don't think <laughs> I'm stalking you or anything, but you put it out there, so I, I, I took it up. You got a legislative council meeting tonight, if I'm I not do. mistaken. Yes. I do. And I know it's, it's, you know, it's not the nuts and bolts of municipal government. It's not exactly keynote material. I think one of the items, the action items was 
replacing uh, the LED lights. I think that was one of them, yes. which is, I, I mean, this no, has been a big issue it's, in our town. <laughs> it's important. I mean, it's not not important, but it's just like the stuff that we all take for granted. And there's another thing on there, by the way, that was related to COVID that I saw for the fire fire department, right? Which was substantial, right. substantial bit of money. Um, yeah. But, you know, more relevant to what everyone's thinking, you're a mother of school-aged children. We're about to start school. Right. You're a professor at a university, at the colleges, everything's going nuts. You're an employer of your lab uh, members. Um, so you're really in the crosshairs of the coronavirus discussion. Unlike the rest of us in our scientific bubbles, you're maybe in a more of a, like a, a position to act. So yeah. Councilwoman Horsley, what <laughs> are your thoughts and plans for addressing the crisis? Or like maybe not what you're actually going to do, but what should we do? Um, yes, that's a good question. So um, I'll tell you what I have done. Um, so I've testified a bunch of times in front of the Board of Education in my um in the, my kids' district because um, they were the governor in Connecticut said we should be spending all the kids back five days a week, even like a month ago. And I'm thinking, is he nuts? Like, no, you cannot send the kids back five days a week right now in the entire state. That just makes no sense. And so I was really advocating that the board not do that. And um, and many families in where my kids go to school, it's 80% black and brown kids. They were scared to send their kids back because they were the ones that saw the COVID, um, you know, pandemic hit them the hardest. Mm. And, and so they didn't want to send their kids back. They're afraid. And the governor kept saying, we have to do this. And, you know, this is a district that's been underfunded. It's overcrowded. They just don't have the resources to do a good job with this. And so they made the decision not to. They're going against the governor and they're doing it online for 10 weeks so they can get started. Mm. And it was really my voice saying, like, I'm a scientist. Like, this isn't safe. I get it. Mm. This isn't good. And so that can make a big difference there. Um the other things that, you know, we've, I've been really trying to talk in my town, making sure that people have PPE, that we're, you know, making sure that we're not coming together sooner than we should. You know, this is horrible for everyone. Like, I want to have a party. I want to do things. Um, but it's just not a time where we can take this for granted. And we don't know how this is going to impact us in the future or even now in our community. And so... Those are kind of some of the things that I've tried to to advocate for. I think you're doing a trend, fantastic job, and I think it's awesome that we you, we have you here on the show right now in this moment in time because it yeah. tells tells our audience that you know scientists like us have a voice. We have a yes. voice, and we can really make a real difference in the political process. So, thank you so much for joining us here today, Dr. Horsley. You know, you're an accomplished scientist, politician, mentor, parent. I don't know how you have time to sleep, like I said, but <laughs> you can do it all, right? But before yeah. we let you go, we're going to ask you a couple of science peripheral questions. We like to okay. ask all of our guests um, some of these questions. So I'll start off and then Dalen can wrap up with the second one. So what's a non-science book that you're reading right now that's really great and that you want to share with our listeners? Um, I'm reading Stamped from the Beginning um, by Zendi. Kendi, I think is his name. Um so I decided to try to do race and biology in my 
undergraduate class that I'm teaching this semester. Um, and so I'm just trying to understand how race and racism emerged in America and how scientists have impacted that. And so I'm kind of learning before I start teaching. Wow. All right, guys, check that out. Second question, Valerie. Um, who are your scientific heroes? Um, so I think I have a lot. Um, I think one of them is Eric Olson. He's a, so I, my PhD was in muscle biology and he came to my poster when I was a second year graduate student. And I was like, so scared because he was this amazing scientist and he said, good job at my poster. And I was like, Oh my God, amazing. Um, but I've always really admired him because he works on heart and skeletal muscle in the same lab. And he does Drosophila and mice. And he's just a really like diverse and, uh, amazing scientist. I really like him. Um, and I think also Elaine, Elaine Fuchs and Fiona Watt are like the premier female scientists in the skin field. And I think they are both always role models for me in different ways. Um, I mentioned a little bit about how Elaine's work ethic and just her courage to always just jump into whatever field she wants to and do the best she can, um, is pretty amazing. And Fiona, I think has done a lot of balancing family life and career. She's, moving around in different universities in London and, and in England just to like be the director of the next amazing thing. And so I think both of them, um, are people that I look up to. Well, those are big names. You can count yours among them. You are a <laughs> hero to many young scientists, probably some old scientists out there too. <laughs> Uh, thanks a lot for uh, sharing your thoughts with us and those real substantial tips. Guys, two hours. That's all it takes. Two hours, go to a town meeting and you can actually do something instead of signaling about it. Um, thanks again, Valerie. We hope to have you on again. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll continue to stay attuned to your political career, too, just so I can know what to do and what to tell people what to do. Yes. Awesome. Thanks, guys. All right, guys, that brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. And hey, guys, do what the councilwoman said, okay? Suggest some things to your representatives, okay? It only takes two hours to have your voice heard and remembered. You can make an impact this election season. Do something, guys. I'm certainly getting out there. I'm motivated.